Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Hey, good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm the pastor here at the Vineyard, and welcome to... Sunday morning is the first Sunday of Advent, so it's the Sunday of hope. And uh, I want to say a couple things before we jump into today's message. Uh, number one, Advent is a word that means arriving or coming. And uh, that's what this whole season is about for the next four weeks. It's about anticipating uh, the birth of Jesus. But here in the church, what we do is we use the birth of Jesus, his first coming. We use it like a prism to begin to anticipate the second coming of Jesus. That's what we are. We're like, we're people who live between the two arrivals. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. We're going to be leaning into that. And we're going to do that with a series that we're, that we're, uh, that we're putting together here at the Vineyard called The Bright Valley. And we've done this with our friends at the Evanston Vineyard. If you notice here on the title slide, it says Evanston Vineyard and Vineyard Campbellsville. Well, that's because... We created this series with our friends uh, there in Evanston. So uh, Emily uh, Snyder, who's on the preaching team with me, she and I have been working for the last six weeks with my very good friend, Ted Kim, and his associate, Jess. And we've been working on all kinds of things that we might journey together uh, to churches through this Advent moment. And we wanted to do that for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one would just be that Nothing in the church is meant to be for individuals. It's supposed to be for all of us. Like even this morning, a moment ago, we prayed our father. We didn't pray my father. We prayed our father. And uh, it extends even beyond churches. Like what God wants to do in his heart toward us is not just for our little vineyard, but it's, it's connected to the church around the globe. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to come with another church and say, you know what? Why don't we enter into uh, this moment of anticipating the arrival of Jesus? And why don't we do that together? Uh, the other thing I want to say about Advent before we get into the text this morning uh, is this, that, that Advent is something that happens in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. And, and here's what that means. It means that there's a sense in which the next four weeks are a bit of contrast to maybe the Western traditional understanding of Christmas, like the Western version of Christmas. I mean, it's pretty shiny, you know? I mean, it's, it's pretty sentimental. It's, it's a little bit of glitter, and, and I'm not against that. I'm actually for it. But I do want to say that it's not actually the gospel story. Uh, the glitter and the gold and the sentimentality is not the gospel story. Instead, the gospel story is that when people had no hope, that's when God was most at work. God was moving in the dark. And so you might be here this morning, you might be thinking, well, I don't feel very merry and bright. Or maybe my life is kind of a wreck. Or maybe things haven't gone well. Or maybe it feels like an extended season of loss. Uh, and it doesn't, feel like, it doesn't feel like I'm getting anything, but it feels like things have been taken from me. And I just want you to know, if that's you, uh, you are in the crosshairs of God's love and embrace because that is exactly what Advent is about. In the very moment when God's people had nothing, that is when he came to them. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. 
And we're going to do that with our friends in Evanston, and we're going to do that through the book of Isaiah. So for the next four weeks, all of our sermons will come from Isaiah. And in fact, the first one comes from Isaiah chapter 2, and I think we have a reading from my friend Ted Kim this morning. Hello, friends. It is so good to see you this morning. My name is Ted. Uh, I am the senior pastor of the Evanston Vineyard in the Chicagoland area. Um, I know you. I love your church. I know many of you there, and I'm just delighted to be with you this morning. Um, We are, as two churches, observing Advent together, and we couldn't be more thrilled. And I'd love to read the passage for this morning. Uh, It's from the book of Isaiah. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn with me. To Isaiah chapter 2, we'll read the first five verses. This is what Isaiah, son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. All right, everybody. The title of today's message is Hope is a Mountain. And I hope you notice that at the beginning of Isaiah's passage, he talks about uh, not only would there be a mountain, but, it, but, the, but the temple of the Lord would be on the highest mountain. And that's really where we're beginning today's message. Um, uh, so what we want to talk about today is we want to talk about the mountain of the Lord and we want to talk about hope. But before we get into that, what I do want to tell you is that these verses that we've read this morning, these five verses, they are pregnant with Genesis imagery and especially Eden imagery, and we're going to be pulling that apart as we walk through the text this morning. But since today's message is called Hope is a Mountain, the first thing I want to do is I want to talk to you about mountains for a moment. Uh, We have a few of us gathered in the room, and here's what I know about a room this size this morning. I know that some of us in the room are uh, beach people, and I know that some of us in the room are city people, and I know that some of us here are mountain people. Uh, Depending on the day, I'm all three, but if you had to press me into a corner, I'm mostly a mountain person, and I'll just just tell you a couple stories really quickly. Um, If you follow me on the Instagram, you know that one of the things I like to do is I like to ride mountain bikes with my family, especially in western North Carolina, and this week I was thinking about a trip that I took last year with my two oldest sons and their uncle, my brother-in-law, Justin, and we went and we went riding for a few days in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And it's always an adventure. That's, that's one of the words you have to place with mountains is you have to place adventure. And that's the reason I'm, I'm so into mountains. And we were, we were riding our mountain bikes. And one of the things that you do when you're riding mountain bikes is that you first have to climb the mountain. And on this particular day, the climb was about an hour and 20 minutes straight up. 
So it's an hour and 20 minutes. It was a seven and a half or eight mile climb to the top of the mountain. And before we got to the top, we were nearly there. Uh, River goes around a corner. Seth goes around a corner. Justin goes around a corner. And as I'm about to go around the corner, because I'm last, I'm the oldest and the least fit. uh, As I'm about to go around the corner, I look down and right by my bike, I see two timber rattlesnakes. So I jump off my bike and I call to the guys. I'm like, hey guys, look at this. And they were... They were, as, they were as black as these chairs, and, and the, the pattern on them, it looked like gold leaf. I've never seen rattlesnakes this particular color. It was, it was unbelievable, and, and we were sort of like at a distance admiring them, and then if you know my brother-in-law, Justin, at all, Justin is off of his bike, and he goes full Steve Irwin, and he's like, he's, he's in its face, and the thing starts rattling, right, and, and that's when I'm telling Justin, we are very far from the truck. I cannot pick you up. If you get bitten by this snake, you'll die on this mountain, right? And, and so we, then we continued our ride. We come down the mountain, and in awesome fashion, Justin has a great wreck, and he, he cuts himself, like really good, like should have gone to the emergency room, big gash right on his knee, and in also a typical Justin fashion, he's like, I don't need stitches. It's fine. Take me to CVS. And so River and Seth go into CVS and they get in peroxide and bandages. And Justin is on the curb and he's got his leg out and he's bleeding profusely. There's a river of blood coming out of his leg. It's, it's pulling around our truck. And then there's people coming into CVS, families with small children. And they have to walk by a man who's bleeding in the parking lot. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because this is the kind of thing that happens when you go to the mountains. Uh, it's adventure, but any, anything could happen. Like you get up that morning, you, you go to Waffle House, you think we're gonna, we're gonna shred the gnar, we're gonna ride some downhill, and before the day is over, you've nearly been bitten by a rattlesnake and you've had a wreck. That's what happens. Uh, story number two. I've told this maybe a time or two before, but it bears repeating. Several years ago, probably six or seven years ago, my father-in-law and I, uh, Ray, we were we were hunting mule deer in Montana. And my host said on the day that we arrived, he said, we've got a few hours of light. Let's, let's go to the mountain behind my house and let's, let's, let's have an afternoon hunt. And when he said that, you know, afternoon hunt means one thing in Kentucky. It doesn't mean the same thing in Montana. I, I just thought, ah, no big deal. So I grabbed my gun and threw on my heavy coat and out the door we went. And we came to the place where we were going to divide and, and go up the mountain. And John says, you know, Adam, you go to the right. Ray, you go to the left. I'll come up the middle. And at the back of this mountain, there's a log road. When you get there, just stop and we'll meet up. And so I went out to the right. I, I, I bumped some elk and I'm just having the best time ever. Uh, there's just adventure everywhere. And I get to the top of the mountain. I do find the log road, but I don't see John and I don't see Ray. And so I thought, eh, this is not a big deal. I'm, I'm fitter than they are. I probably got here first. That's what I was thinking. And so I sat down to wait on them. I was going to sit down and just hunt. And, and while I'm sitting there, the sun begins to go down. I wasn't worried. I was like, ah, they'll be here in a minute. They didn't come. And before I knew it, like within an instant, the sun had gone all the way down and it was now pitch black on the back of a mountain in Montana. It was so dark. At one point, I put my hand up 
I did the Mammoth Cave thing. You know when they turn the lights off in Mammoth Cave and you, and you can't see your hand? I did that. I couldn't see my hand. And that's when I realized I'd made a huge mistake because I didn't have my phone with me. I didn't have a flashlight. I did have a gun. I had one granola bar. And that was it. And I didn't know where I was at. I knew generally the direction that I had walked in, but it was so dark I couldn't see. And I'd taken a couple steps and I'd fallen down. And then I thought, I think I'm going I'm to die here. I think I'm going to die here. And then once I got past that, I, I began to yell. And I yelled as loud as a human can possibly yell. I, I screamed, Raymond! <laughs> Nothing. So for the next hour, I walked over the mountain really slow. And finally, I hit a barbed wire fence. And the barbed wire fence hit me in the chest. I couldn't even see that it was there. It hit me in the chest. And so then I grabbed the top of the barbed wire fence with my glove. And I walked with the barbed wire in my hand for over an hour. Because I thought, this has to go somewhere. And finally, way in the distance, I see a little light. And I go to the light and it happens to be a house. And in the house, I see a man who's standing at his kitchen window washing dishes, but he can't see me because I'm in the woods with my gun. And I'm thinking, I need to talk to this man, but if he sees me, he's going to kill me (laughs) because he's a Montana man and they all have weapons. So I walked out of the woods with my gun like this And I put it down by the garage and I went and knocked on his door and a very gruff, not very happy man came to the door and said, what do you want? I said, I am an idiot. I am lost and I need you to help me. He's like, get in my truck. He's like, where are you going? I said, John Barnett. He goes, oh, I know John. He's my neighbor. Got rescued. Why am I telling you these stories? I'm telling you these stories because these are the kinds of things that can happen in the mountain. And we'll come back to those maybe in a moment. But I, I want to I say a couple things about mountains. Mountains are no joke. And for the people in the scriptures, uh, mountains, mountains were like places where, where people tried to get to heaven. So all through the scriptures, and not just uh, uh, the scriptures in terms of God's people, but even uh, the people who lived around God's people in the ancient Near East, Anybody who built a temple or a synagogue or a place to meet with God, they always built it on the top of a mountain. And the reason they did that was it's a little bit closer to heaven. Mountains are places where you meet with God. Uh, Maybe you remember in the Old Testament, Moses receives the Ten Commandments on the mountain. Uh, Or maybe in the New Testament, uh, you remember that Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. And then, yeah, even at the end of the Gospels, Jesus was crucified on a mountain. Mountains are all over the Bible. Uh, They're also profound metaphors. And maybe we could just spend a moment on the metaphor here. Um, Mountains mountains represent that which is unmoving. Uh, Mountains represent that which is uh, steady and unchanging. Even in the face of uh, wild weather, even in the face of geologic moments, mountains, mountains don't change, they remain. And so because of that, Mountains represent uh, that which is eternal. Uh, All of the mountains are going to outlast you and I. You and I will be 
will be dust in the earth and the mountains will remain. So when Isaiah begins to say something about the mountain of the Lord, he's talking about, he's talking about that which is eternal and that, way, that which is that which is um, that which remains. Last thing I want to say about mountains is this: uh, they are the world's water towers. Mountains are the world's water towers. Uh, Sixty to eighty percent of the world's fresh water comes out of the mountains. And Tokyo, maybe the biggest city in the world, is completely and utterly dependent upon the mountains that surround it for its water. The, the reason I bring that up is is this, uh, in the same way that you and I cannot live without water, you and I cannot live without hope. And so the title of, the title of today's message is Hope is a Mountain. And here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to share with you three ways that hope is a mountain from Isaiah chapter 2. Three ways that hope is a mountain. Number one, Isaiah's mountain is the new Eden. The new Eden. I told you up front that there's a lot of echoes of Genesis and echoes of Eden. And the echo here is really faint, but it becomes more profound as we, as we work our way through the text. I need you to underline that word stream in your minds. Maybe you have a Bible or maybe you're just looking at the screen. But the word stream is the exact same word that is used over and over in the, in the Old Testament for the word river. So this could be translated either river or stream. And if you remember in the book of Genesis, there were four rivers that flowed out of Eden to the rest of the world. And the idea in Genesis was that these rivers that, that brought life to Eden, they were to, they were to move outside of Eden and bring the life of Eden to every place that they went. That's sort of the, the word picture. So number one, stream is river, and it's this echo of Eden right up front. But the second thing I want you to catch here is this, and it's very odd and it's very peculiar. Uh, look, at, look at the way that this stream flows. Uh, most streams, uh, when they come out of the mountains, how do they flow? From the top to where? The bottom. But here, here in, in Isaiah, we see that the stream is going where? From the bottom to the top. Isaiah says that in the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. And look, the nations will stream to it. So instead of moving away, instead of moving away, we have this, this echo of Eden, but it's like reverse Eden. The nations are coming, the nations are coming to it. And here's, here's what Eden represents, and here's what Isaiah is saying to us in this first opening verse. Uh, in the same way that Eden is a place of God's presence, in the same place that Eden is a place of God's care, in the same place that uh, in the same way that Eden is a place of God's uh, rest and it's a place of communion. In the last days, everything that was lost, everything that was that dissipated, everything that we that we lost grasp of in Eden, it's going to be restored, and there's going to be a new river. And it, but instead of water, it's going to be people, and they're all going to come to God. And in the same way that Adam and Eve. Uh, had communion and rest and provision. In the end, in the end, everyone's going to experience the same presence, care, and provision that was first established in the garden. Another note about the temple here. 
In the last days, the mountain of the, of the Lord's temple will be established. The temple of the Lord was built on a mountain, but the truth is there were other hills around it that were higher. But Isaiah says it's the highest of the mountains. Uh, I think that's just Isaiah's way of saying it's the most important. He wasn't speaking like, uh, he wasn't getting out his tape measure, but instead what he was saying is that God's temple and, and God's mountain, God's house, it's the one that's the most important. Uh, and this is hopeful news because what we see here in Isaiah is that everyone is being welcomed in. Uh, everyone's being, being drawn into the flow. Uh, the, the good news is this morning, no matter who you are, and no matter where you're at, you're being welcomed in. You're being welcomed into the flow that, that, that is being drawn to God. God is even now welcoming you in. Uh, whether things are going really good in your life or whether things are really difficult, uh, whether you've been on your best behavior or whether you have not, God is extending a welcome to you. Look, the nations will stream to it. Presence, rest, beauty, order, all of those things are available to everyone in the room this morning. Uh, number two, it's a mountain of hope because it's where we learn to be human. This is in verse three. Hope is a mountain because it's where we learn to be human. It's where we learn how to be our truest selves. It's where we learn to be our truest selves. Uh, just, like, just like in the natural, uh, mountains teach us a thing or two. Uh, so does the mountain of the Lord teach us a thing or two. But we'll start with the natural first. Uh, how many of you know that if you go into mountains, you will learn lessons? It's why I told you these stories this morning. Uh, the first lessons that real mountains teach people is this. You are a fragile human, and no matter how much you know, and no matter how fit you are, and how ready you think you are, the mountain might decide other, right? You go into the mountains, you will learn just how fragile you are. Uh, how many of you have ever gone out west and gone to like a twelve or 13,000 foot mountain, and what's the first thing you learn? can't breathe. Like I was doing great and now I'm not. Uh, there are lessons to be learned and it's the same with the mountain of the Lord, but the Lord wants to teach us more than just we're fragile people. The Lord wants to teach us his ways. He wants to show us how to walk in his paths. And by the way, learning God's ways and learning how to walk in God's paths, that's how we become fully human. That's how you become that's how you become your, your truest selves. And I would, I'd like you to think about this too. It's another reverse Eden, another Genesis echo. I'd like you to think about Adam in the garden with God. Uh, maybe you remember how Genesis said that in the cool of the day, God would walk with Adam. In the cool of the day, God would walk with Adam. Uh, have you ever considered what kind of things that God and Adam might have communed with one another over? What kind of things might God be doing with Adam or teaching Adam? Uh, here's, here's what I think. It doesn't say in the text, but this is what I think. I think there's a possibility that maybe God was teaching Adam to live in Eden. 
I think there's a possibility that God was teaching him how to, how to live fruitfully in this place that has been provided for him. Maybe, maybe God would go to Adam and say, you know, uh, here's how you get the most out of the land. Uh, here's how you best care for these plants and these animals. Uh, here's how you best live in harmony with the place that I've planted you into. I think even from the very beginning, when people and God were fully together face to face, I believe that God was teaching his ways. This is another echo of Genesis, another Eden echo that we see this morning. We would learn to walk in God's ways, and in doing so, we'd be fully human. This is how we learn to be human. Um, and here's, here's the contrast I think I'm trying to make this morning. Uh, the world says that, that we learn to be human from impulse or instinct. The world says, well, you're, you're the most human when you, do, when you just simply do what feels right to you. The world says, I'm most fully human when I live from my truth. The world says, I'm, I'm most human when I just do the thing that comes most naturally to me. But the Bible says, no, you're the most human when we learn the ways and the paths of God. And when Isaiah says, it's the highest of the mountains, Part of what he's saying is that we don't have to look to other hills that might teach us how to live. By the way, all around Israel, there would have been other hills with other temples. In fact, it's one of the things we see over and over in the Old Testament is how often people would maybe go to another hill to worship, uh, to learn some other ways. And when Isaiah says that the temple of the Lord is the highest, what he's saying is, is that we don't have to go to these other hills. We can, we can reject the notion that our instincts are our best teacher, but we can also reject the contemporary notion that there are other hills that have advice that's just as good as God's. In fact, we don't have to learn from the hilltop of nationalism. That'd be something I'd want to say to the church. We don't have to, we don't have to go to the political mountain of of nationalism or even the one that's falsely sanctified that we might call, that we might call Christian nationalism. Uh, we don't have to learn from the hilltop of American success. Uh, we don't have to be educated on the hilltop of acquisition. Uh, none of these hills and none of these mountains are going to make us happy or fully human. Like, let's just do a thought experiment here for a moment. What, what if... What if, you just, what if you just gave in to the human impulse of acquisition? But not just gave into it, but like what if you lived fully and thoroughly and deeply into acquisition? Like more, 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 more. What if you went all the way in and what if your whole life's energies were spent working on getting just a little bit more? How many of you recognize that within a very short while, you'd become less human. Like if it was just all coming to me, I'd become less human. Because there's something about being fully human, especially as Jesus shows us, that it's about not just receiving, but it's about giving, isn't it? This is what it means to be fully human. And then number three, finally, the mountain of the Lord is where enmity dies. Enmity is just another word for strife or corruption or competition. Uh, even in the natural, mountains do this today. Uh, right now, uh, there are people making their way up Mount Everest. People are always somewhere on the mountain 
on Everest. And uh, it's the highest mountain in the world. And uh, right now, not only are people on Everest, but people from all over the world are on Everest. Uh, people who, who maybe politically uh, don't get along or, or people who represent countries that are maybe possibly at war with one another right now. And here's what's very interesting about a place like Everest. People who politically disagree, people who, whose countries are even possibly at war, guess what happens when they meet one another on Everest? Without fail, they all help one another. The extreme challenges and the demands of Everest require that we help one another. Hey, you need some oxygen? Well, here's a tank. Hey, you need a helping hand? Well, take mine. That's what happens on the biggest mountain in the world. All of the strife and all of the enmity and all the competition that creates division, it goes away. And Isaiah says, Isaiah says the same thing. He says, he will judge between the nations. He'll settle disputes for many peoples. And look at this. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In the mountain of the Lord, we no longer kill one another. We no longer, we no longer have strife with one another. There's real unity. And why? Because God is the one who unites, and he unites by by making judgments between the nations. And a lot of times we hear the word judgment and what we hear is like condemnation. But judgment, when it comes from God, is, is never solely rooted in condemnation. Uh, instead, I think the words of uh, Elul are, very, are really helpful here. Uh, Elul says this, words of judgment, when correctly understood, are words of liberation for everyone. They are words of hope which certify the love of God. God's judgment, God's judgment want to set free the oppressed, but God also wants to set free the oppressor. He wants to set free the oppressor from the need to be the oppressor. And as a result, we will beat our swords into plows, our spears into pruning hooks. By the way, that's another echo of Eden. Another echo of Eden. If we're taking our weapons of war and we're turning them into garden implements, it's a quiet echo of Eden. And here's what I would like to say to the church this morning. Uh, spears into pruning hooks, swords into plows. These are garden tools. And instead of engaging in conflict one, with one another, we'll work the ground to produce fruit together. Again, the new Eden, uh, reversing the curse. Cain wanted the blessing and he didn't get it. So he took his pruning hook and his sickle, and he made it into a spear, and he destroyed his brother. But on the mountain of the Lord, Cain's sword goes back to being a plow. This is what it means to be human. So how do we hold on to hope? Or how do we lay hold of it while we wait? Verse 5, Isaiah would say, Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Descendants of Jacob, let us Walk in the light of the Lord. By the way, descendants of Jacob, another Genesis echo. Another Genesis echo. How do we hang on to hope? How do we, how do we begin that journey onto the mountain of the Lord? Well, we walk in the light of the Lord, and you can't see the word light, especially in this context, without thinking about Jesus, who is the light of the world. This is what John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 says. It says, In him was life. 
And that light, well, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, we hang on to hope by walking in the light of Jesus and by staying near to him. By the way, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody in this room. We know that part of the story. Uh, here's another little uh, nugget about Bethlehem. Bethlehem was also a little mountain town, and it was actually a hundred feet higher than Jerusalem, God's temple, right? And so the light of the world was actually born, was born also on a place of communion. But it was a place that few people expected. And maybe, maybe that's a word for us this morning. As we, as we enter this journey of, of, of going up the mountain of the Lord, uh, maybe the light we need for the journey, maybe, maybe it's coming from Bethlehem. That'd be, that'd be an Advent way of saying, let's look for the light of Jesus in places that you and I wouldn't expect it. Maybe it's going to manifest in ways that we had not first anticipated. Uh, maybe it's going to show up uh, in a location that you and I weren't expecting. A couple things as we, lay this, as, we, as we wrap this up this morning. Hope is a mountain, and it shows us three things. First, the mountain of the Lord, it's the new Eden, streams of humanity. And so one question we might ask ourselves this morning is, if there's streams of humanity, if the nations are coming to it, we might ask ourselves this, well, who, who, who's on the journey with me? It's our father, not my father. Who's on the journey with me. And hopefully, hopefully you're not alone. Hopefully you're not alone. This is, this is actually part of the point of church is that you, is, is that you can't make this journey alone. Like how, how do you come back to the, to the new Eden? How do you come back to the place of communion and blessing and provision and rest? Well, you don't go alone. You don't go alone. Uh, who is with you on the journey? Uh, number two, the mountain the mountain of the Lord is where we learn to be human. It, it's, it's where we learn to give up just simply the, the instincts of our own feelings. It's, it's where we learn to be a disciple of Jesus, where we learn to take on his ways rather than just following our own truth. But it's also where we, we, we forsake every other mountain, every other high place. We say, you know, no, I, I want to go to the mountain of the Lord while I, where I will learn his ways and I will learn it directly from God. And so maybe the question this morning is, what is God teaching me? What is God teaching me? If I'm, if I'm in the flow, if I'm going up the mountain, then, then part of what the Bible would say is that God would be teaching you. And so maybe one good reflection for us this morning is, what is it that God has been teaching me lately? What is it that God is teaching? Who's with me and what am I learning? And then third, the mountain of the Lord or the mountain of hope is where all enmity and strife dies. And so we might ask ourselves this morning, am I becoming a person of peace? Am I becoming a person of peace? Am I becoming a person who is letting go of the swords and the spears? And am I becoming someone who is finding uh, garden tools, you know? Like, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means that our heart posture is bent towards forgiveness and cultivating a particular 
kind of experience all around us. And that begins with laying down enmity and strife. Nation wouldn't fight against nation. Plows instead of swords. Where is the strife in my life? This might be the place that that God would have me garden in a brand new way. So number one, who's on the journey with me? Uh, Number two, what is God teaching me? And then number three, how is it that I could in these next four weeks give up the swords, give up the spears, and pick up the plows and the pruning because God wants to restore Eden to the whole world. Amen? Here's what I would love this morning. I would love it if you would stand and if the worship band would come on up. I want to pray and then we're going to sing one more time together. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.